So we've talked about this before. This is a safe space as a way of like trying to force safety into a team or a, or a, a culture, right? Where you really have to be an active participant in this, not just decreeing something. Um, I thought about this only in so far as Scrum as a framework has these prom promises and aspirations of Scrum, but just applying the nuts and bolts of Scrum does not guarantee any of these values will come to the surface and that your teams will excel, you know? Mm, what values are you talking about specifically, John? So those Scrum values, commitment, focus, openness, respect, courage, all of those things are, are there um, and are, are touted in, you know, in the academia of, of Scrum. But really, um, I wanted to kind of flip it a little bit today and talk about, as we know from the Scrum Manifesto, uh, people over processes. Right. So if the process is Scrum, how do we put the Scrum team members and the, and the people that we're working with above the framework? Right. And how do those values really translate when you have so many different folks together on a team? I'm Sarah Rose Belloc. I'm John Ragazine. Welcome to Two Scrums Up. We are two Scrum Masters and builders of Agile teams across the world. Together, we talk about cultivating psychological safety first and equity-minded remote Scrum teams. So John, the Scrum values, as you said, they're an ideal. And their practical application on a team and how they manifest on a team is going to look wildly different from team to team. What I think is what I'd like to zero in on today is when when we're thinking about all of the different identities that folks bring to a team and all the different the unique experiences and perspectives how as a team member no matter what role we are how we can use our own voice to amplify others and to bring everyone to essentially give everyone a seat at the table and to create more equity on our teams, equity of voice within the conversations that we have. Because if we were together in person, this would look different. It would be about doing things together. It would be about actually, you know, inviting physical people into a meeting. But when we're when we're left to the auspices of Zoom, when we're left to these Zoom rooms and this virtual connectivity, this like how to cultivate equitable remote scrum teams we need to be even more mindful of how how we can what it looks like to create equity-minded te teams so i think we should start with drawing it back to our own experiences first yeah absolutely and you know when i think about this which is a, a point of learning that I've been trying to to really focus on over the past couple of years. Uh, another way of thinking about it is just power dynamics on a team. So you have different different sort of, uh, I don't know, altitudes that people hold themselves in, and it may be gender-based or racial-based or uh, hierarchic hierarchical, like tenure-based, or just personality-based. Um, there's all different things that can either 
manifest in someone uh, dominating a conversation or being afraid or, 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 you know, apathetic to even speak. Right. So if we think about like, if we're talking about allyship, I feel like I know that this last year, a lot of white folks like you and I have been, especially at tech companies, have been thinking about allyship and have been thinking about how we can create more equity on our teams. And oh, I don't want to say, especially in this last year. Like it's a new problem. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's the thing. It's not a, that's the, there's this beautiful book by Jenna Wortham and Kim, Kimberly Drew called Black Futures. And it's basically, it's not an anthology. They say explicitly it's not an anthology. It's not like a, it's not like a, it's a work of art. It's like an existence of like black folks in the, in the past, present, and future. And one of the pieces that it highlights in this book is this whole page that says, now more than ever, now more than ever, ever. And it's this beautiful like art piece. And it's made me think a lot about like how equity and amplification is not of marginalized voices is not something new. It it's it's more visible now, but the fact that we're prioritizing it is good, but we still have a lot of work to do. And with that, thinking about amplification and equity of voice, also being mindful as we go into this conversation, John, is that we're not saying that one type of person is like, has it worse off than another? <laughs> because that kind of like hierarchy of who has more difficulty is it's a dangerous road to go on and it's not productive. What's more productive is to honor our differences and honor our unique experiences that both give us advantages and hold us back in our careers and on our teams. So John, I'm wondering in your experience, when was a time, if we're talking about allyship, if we're talking about allyship on scrum teams, so when was a time, John, that you felt like an ally. And uh, and for our listeners, I, I think it'd be interesting for, for them to think about this as well. When is a time that you felt like an ally or when is a time that you felt like a target? I wanna answer the first question because whether or not I, I felt like a target and I have those anecdotes, I think it's a it's a waste of, of everyone's time for me to be like, this is my poor white guy story. Um, I would rather instead focus on what I'm trying to change. You know, you, you, you spoke earlier about the now more than ever trope or, or triteness. Uh, and it's true. This is a systemic problem. However, uh, what we're trying to do and what I'm trying to do is just make small changes. Small changes add up over time. And if all I get out of my efforts is to improve some of the cultures that I'm directly a part of, great. I would love it if it was more transformative, mm -hmm. but I want to do something. I don't want to get overwhelmed mm -hmm. by the size of the problem. So I'm focusing on the small stories today, the things that I've done that I've seen actual results from. Before you start, I want to hear your story. Let's share a definition of allyship to get everyone on the same page so we can all have a foundation, like a starting point to talk about this. To be an ally... What we're talking about is being aware of your place in the world as well as the places of the people around you. You want to be um, actively engaged in dismantling systemic inequities, even if it's just in your day-to-day, -day, in your very small bubble of which you live. 
Would you want to add anything to the definition of allyship, what it means to you, Sarah Rose? Yeah, and it's not enough to – you can be motivated to not have prejudice towards others, but it's – that is – what's important is action and to be what you just said, actively engaging. It's that praxis. There's theory and then there's putting theory into action in order to change. So let's start there. What is a time that you felt like an ally? And then we can do a little switcheroo. Sure. So I will draw from my, my scrum team here. And one of the things that I've always really liked is sort of a free sharing of ideas in sprint retros where i'm listening actively listening i'm posing questions we're digging deeper we're having like a good quote unquote good conversation amongst the team however what happens there and i talked earlier about power dynamics what happens there is that a subset of the team usually maybe two to three people out of the eight or nine people on the team depending uh dominate the conversation they're the voices that are heard most often and those voices are coming from people like me somewhat tenured white guys. And so should they be a part of the conversation? Yes. Should I be part of the conversation? Yes. But it wasn't, it wasn't equal. It wasn't, everyone wasn't sharing. It was, it was imbalanced. And so of a very simple switch that I pulled on this is just to um, start using protocols more in our retro and my retro facilitation, specifically um, a retro, a retro where the team um, spends the first couple of minutes submitting topics that they may want to talk about that day. Blind submission. Mm. Why do you choose? Why do you use to? Why do you choose to make it anonymous? Uh, I want to do as much as I can to keep everyone on the same level, and I also want people to feel mm, safe to, like, to minimize bias. To, yeah, to minimize bias to take people to take the risks to put things out there, as well as uh, not giving. Uh, a bolder font to the person who is quote unquote, like the team leader, for example, I want everything out there. So there's one thing about, yes, people submit all of their uh, suggested topics for the day, but we can't talk about everything. So the next, the next stage is uh, blind voting where people have a set number of votes and you could put all of them on one topic or you could sprinkle them around, but that sets a, a linear scale. This is what the team wants to talk about most in totalum. So this is what we'll move through. And then those conversations are structured uh, in usually 10-minute chunks where it's, here's topic one. I'm going to set the timer for 10 minutes. Like, what do we have to say about this? And what you're trying to do is build in uh, more opportunities for topics submitted by, by lesser vocal people uh, to be put out there. What was great was um, I didn't make a big deal out of it in this case. Sometimes you need to be direct, and we'll talk about that later. But in this, I was like, I'm just going to do something different. What happened afterwards was that several members of my team talked about how much they liked the time boxing and the ability to talk through the things that were most important, not the things that were first suggested uh, at the start of the meeting. Mm, I love that, John. Crisp time boundaries help people take risk. So it's interesting because what you did was you you helped. So you made you made submissions for what to talk about in the meeting anonymous. But I also think there's an element of that that connects with that scrum value of courage. You're you're helping people have the courage to talk about things that they might not usually feel comfortable speaking up about. And I do think that there's something to be said about having your like owning 
owning what you say and having your name on it. But but I don't think that's the that's the problem that you are trying to solve. What you are trying to do was to invite more opinions, more diverse perspectives. And so equity is really about inviting that dissonance in opinion, that 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 complexity of perspective in a group. So I love that example. Saros, how about you? Um, moments where you were an ally or moments where you were a target or both. Uh, the, the floor is yours. I'm going to go in the opposite direction and offer a different type of example. So a class that I took in grad school on the history of education, many great philosophers, many great thinkers of, you know, how who have decided the future of how children learn and grow together, right? And something I noticed in the coursework was that all of the famous people that we read about in this course were predominantly men. And I, although I, you know, I enjoyed the course and I was learning a lot, I identified a real gap in hearing from different people's perspectives that had an impact in education. And I was very, I would have been very surprised if there were no, uh, I would be very surprised if there were not folks from other communities that were a part of this cohort of influential educators throughout American history. Like it was probably, it was, it was, I would have been surprised if that wasn't the case. And so I went to this professor and I said, hey, um, I'm wondering if I noticed that are there were really no there were really no women represented or like other voices, other underrepresented folks in the content of our curriculum. And I'm wondering if you've thought about including different people in what we learn about Um, because I wanted to see myself. That's really what it is. I wanted to see myself in the work and in my own learning. And I think that's really natural. And so. His response to me was, oh, Sarah Rose, that's a great idea. Um, why don't you think about like TAing a course with us next semester and you can decide the curriculum of the course? And to me, that felt it was it was really difficult because I think it it made me feel like a native informant, like I had to educate him about what a woman's perspective would be in the course. And the okay. reason, yeah, that I'm, yeah. yeah, and yeah. and so what I'm sharing, the reason I'm sharing that example is that I've seen also in, um, especially amongst developers, and is that there's an idea of like, okay, we have a problem in our industry, or we have a problem on this team, this like group of developers, and we want to include uh, more diverse perspectives. And this is not just gender, it can be socioeconomic backgrounds, um, ethnicity, age, like, you know, all of the different intersections of our identities. But the solution is, let's, let's ask the underrepresented group or the less represented group to tell us how to do it right. Let's talk to the quieter folks to tell them how to make this right instead of us doing our research ourselves. Um, and so that that's that is really that puts the burden on on historically marginalized groups. And I think that's a real pitfall. I mean, and, you know, 
as much as Allie has made incredible strides for this, we also I also acknowledge that I've you know I I haven't always been perfect, and our and our you know we're not perfect, and there's a lot of work to do. But it's definitely something to think about, and it's how I've seen it manifest in my own experience. Yeah, that is that that is that reminds me. Well, well, just to say, that's you're right, and that's assuming that all the answers are there. We just don't know them. We have to go to like the magic book or to like the, 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 the sage on the hill and be like, how do we better represent you person? And then they'll be like, well, yeah. this is all you have to do. There's, there's a recipe, there's a formula, there's an Ikea diagram that will show you what to do, which is, which is not the case. It, it, it reminds me of, um, an anecdote I heard about, um, it may have been the Baltimore police department. I can't remember exactly, but they, but wanting to do a, a better job interacting with uh, their communities of color in their city. And so having these big community reach outs and, and they're having sit down and talking to the community and having that FaceTime, which like, okay, that's a good start. Right. But then while that amounted from that was white police officers going, going up to people of color and saying, Hey, how can I better police your neighborhood? It's not their responsibility to, to figure out how to better police things. That's the police's job. It's more so like this is a problem. So with passing the buck, with that professor of yours passing the buck and being like, yeah, I totally agree. You know, they're aware that's a big problem. You, you should totally just go ahead and fix it and I will just get out of the way, which, which isn't the same as taking an active part in making things better. Right. And there's, you know, I think it's it's all of that, though, like going to the communities and in the example that you shared about going to the communities of color and asking, like, how do we how do we do our job better? Like, I do think that is valuable, but it's also a, it's like it's definitely inviting people to the table to solve a problem, like people from different communities. I think that getting all stakeholders involved in in a conversation is important, but not like but. I think the the missing piece is not doing the when the onus is on the marginalized folks when the onus is on the un, less represented folks to figure it out when there's when that is when like the seesaw like the proverbial seesaw is like very out of balance to circle back to my anecdote from before yeah that protocol did did good work it, it leveled the playing field even a little bit it went noticed by the team which is great um, however, and this is why we talked about the scrum values at the start and, and scrum being like, it's not a fix all. You don't just follow all of the rules to a T and suddenly teams are equitable and respectful and open and all these things. There's all this work that goes into it. And so passively applying a framework isn't enough. And so in that instance of the protocol, what I noticed still was that in those 10 minute chunks, a lot of the talking was still coming from those people who are doing a lot of the talking anyway. So maybe the topics were more broad, but the engagement was still off. And yeah, we can try to like operationally change those things. But what I had to do was give direct feedback to say, hi, I'm your scrum master and I identify this impediment where you are dominating the conversation. And it's not that you, you being engaged is bad. It's that other people are not given the opportunity to, 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 to speak up because we're afraid of silence or because you want to help, you want to solve all the problems, whatever it is. So that direct engagement was also important for me to do with certain members of my team or else like we're only kind of only like we're moving the needle like a little bit and that helps me call these things out and spread the awareness, which obviously is what we're going to have to do here. I'm glad that you're thinking about how direct feedback is the way to go. And 
the reason that what you're saying, like why people, some people feel more emboldened to speak up and why others don't. So John, I want to talk through as a team member, as a scrum master, as a product owner, some things, some do's and don'ts, some helpful and some unhelpful behaviors to identify on teams and in different, you know, we're not always with our teams. We are in other meetings of other intersecting groups at the company. So some unhelpful behaviors that I've noticed is centering yourself in a conversation. It's important to yes and other folks experiences instead of yes but because when we're denying other people's experiences or once and in a very concrete scrum way if someone says well I didn't like this thing that happened on our team this week and another person completely gaslights it and said well I you know, that didn't happen. Like, what are you talking about? It's it's one thing to share different perspectives. It's another to completely deny someone else of their experience. Derailing a conversation. So in the middle of a ritual, when one person derails an entire topic. On the subject of derailing, right? Um, again, one of the strong values is focus on the lack of focus. This happens on every team all the time, right? We're talking, we're doing our, our daily stand-up, we're calling out the risks, the things we're worried about, things we need help with. But people who are feeling a little bit more, uh, I have more of the mic than other folks, will then go into like, here's a long-winded status update of everything I'm working on. Here's the problems. This is how I'm thinking about fixing it. Let's turn this stand-up into a swarm. What you're doing there, A, it's great to be asking for help and rubber ducking, but what you're doing there is you are sucking up all the time that other people have to ask for help or to share successes and making it all about yourself. Like you're, you're recentering the conversation in that. And yeah, and we're not talking about like, these are, these are work related behaviors. Yeah. So this isn't like some larger sort of like, I, I attacked your, 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 your well-being or your self-confidence. This is like just natural. Like mm-hmm. I want to talk about what's going on for me. Yeah. And knowing to call that out or to like put up the stop sign is everyone's job on the team, right? But especially a scrum master should be aware of that, but you know what I mean? So then, but how do you manage it? How do you, like as a participant in that meeting, how do you manage that when the person in the room who's doing that has more positional authority than other than other people in the room? How would you handle it, Sarah Rose? Oh, you're turning it back on me? I mean, this is not a leading question. I'm genuinely... <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. I'm sorry. That was just so like, I'm not trying to get you, John. I'm just like, I'm not yeah. trying to get you, John. No, but it's it's true. I'm genuinely, it's something that I struggle with. It depends on the meeting, right? It's like um, it, the go-to is to talk to that person. Um, and to, they might not be aware of the behavior and sharing it with them, but also, you know, you want to mitigate harm for the other folks that are on your team. So I think it, it actually is about mitigating harm of the group, um, in that moment. So if like one person on the team, okay, I'm, I'm envisioning like we're in a backlog refinement and one person derails the whole conversation and that person has significant positional authority and decides, actually, team, we need to talk about this right now. And the whole team is like, hands up in the air. What? Okay, I guess. Yeah, sure. But I think like what I would do in a situation like that is that's when I would intervene. And I think that any person on the team could say, hold on, hold on, 
how does the rest of the team feel like that? How does the rest of the team feel about changing the direction of our conversation to focus on that? Giving other folks an opportunity to have an opinion and inviting a voice instead of expecting people to like step in and interject. I think that's really the work as a facilitator, balancing that, you know, airtime, essentially. Yeah, I, I agree. And when you ask me, like, how would I handle it? Mm -hmm. I'm I, I'm mostly looking at it through the lens of like, I'm probably the scrum master in this organization in this example. So I'll handle it a certain way. But not everyone will feel that sort of uh, that right of even saying something regardless, you could be the, like a carbon copy of whoever is interrupting the team rare, but you could have all the same conversations and context and upbringing and status and all these things. And you may not say anything anyway, because that's the scrum master's job. And it's really, and that's what we're talking about. We're trying to get to this point of like, no, it's, it's the T everyone on the team is responsible for upholding the integrity and the focus of these rituals for up upholding the quality of the work that we put out there and the work that we put into our planning. It's not just the scrum master's job. And I think like we, I think it was, I saw it recently. It's like scrum masters are not this like weird appendage and we're not like the gatekeepers. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, we yeah. are not, we are not the team's appendix, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, we are. We're the team is the team. We all have different focuses of our roles, but the team is all is just as responsible for helping each other and being a responsible and respectful participant. Um, and that I feel like that ties into our scrum value of respect um, and being mindful of the different team dynamics in the meeting and when to speak up and when to when to step back. Um, so some helpful behaviors that I think have really helped me is instead of, you know, centering the person who's like making the hullabaloo of an explosion on the team, centering the impacted, which was what I was getting at, like moving the focus to the rest of the team, centering the other people who are impacted by this complete derailing of the conversation and really listening to other folks responses and learning, stepping into their perspectives. We talked about stopping what's happening and stopping the pattern, which is more long-term. So stopping the pattern would look like stopping the pattern is talking directly to the person. What are some do's that you do to help yourself be a better ally? First and foremost, I think is to be aware that these behaviors are always at play. Even if my intent is positive, even if the impact is a net positive, um, my presence in meetings, in team interactions and engagements and in conversations carries with it the possibility of de-amplification or an inequity of voice. So it's sort of something that I have to be aware of all the time and I'm trying, but it's we're gonna slip up from time to time, right? Like, so be aware and be willing to make those mistakes, but try. I think that try is the first, the first, first step for it. How about you? I think being open to listening, um, not assuming that I always have the answer when I go into meetings. Um, I especially being open to listening if I know that an, another, you know, if an underrepresented, like historically marginalized person in a meeting is speaking, and I'm, I'm hyper aware of not saying again what they've already said. <laughs> And mm -hmm, really mm -hmm. listening to what they're saying, um, being aware of my own bias, 
um, reflecting on how I might be participating in some of these systems that are unintentionally putting folks down. I think also it's interesting when we think about like Slack and all of these online tools, you know, like what tools, what tools are elevating other people's voices? Are we, re who, whose work are we resharing? Whose work mm -hmm. are we resharing in a document? Whose work are we resharing in a meeting? So our North Star, Bridget McNulty, producer of the pod, she shared earlier today that she had noticed that another woman at our company had created these extraordinary designs in doodles by chance. And she saw them and as like partner of Ali, as COO of Ali, she said to this person like, hey, you're talented and invited her to start doing more designs and start refining her craft and really ended up building some beautiful designs for clients and helping Allie grow. And so this was an example of like when we talk about giving other folks a seat at the table, really pulling the seat out, holding their hand, walking to the table, pulling the seat out and having inviting them to sit down. And so why I like this story is because often what I found is that as I move up in my career, a barrier that I've found is there, I start finding this like queen bee syndrome. Do you know what queen bee syndrome is? Yeah. Well, I don't want to speak what queen bee syndrome is, but queen bees themselves, there's usually one. And if there's two, one has to go. Right. right? In there's the bee world. Yeah. There's not enough room for us all at the top. And so by inviting other women to have a seat at the table and to excel when you're already a woman at the top, I think that's inspiring. I've also been in the opposite situation where I've wanted to excel in my career and I've wanted to take on more responsibility. And other women at my previous jobs have felt like I was gunning for their position and actively worked to exclude me from projects so I couldn't and it's and I know that I'm this is not like a unique experience to me, but I think it speaks to the power of sharing power. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, you don't become more powerful by hoarding it. You become more powerful by sharing it and amplifying it outward because you're a part of that. It makes your team better and it makes people better. Um, it's so funny. You, you talked about about our conversation earlier today with Bridget. And it's true. And I had um, in a classic devaluation of my own efforts, I talked about how, oh, my anecdote could be how in calls, if something, if someone does, says something or does something, just give them credit and do the callback. If I agree with someone's idea, say like that idea person was great. And I agree with you rather than sort of like just absorbing it into yourself. Or if someone has oh, I had this thought and I would do this. I'm like, oh yeah, that person said that last week. I totally remember that. Way to go, that other person. And talking about the idea of like giving credit and how it's like a little thing. It's like a, a little whatever thing. And Bridget quickly scooped it up and said, no, this is important. Yes. That's not the, it's not the single act. It's the fact of always doing it. You are removing uh, the thousands of cuts that people die on every day by being robbed of credit. So it, it, it to me, I thought it was just a small you know, 
uh, afterthought. But really, if, if, if you go throughout your day in focusing on amplifying other people, even in small ways, over time, that adds up to a, a huge change in culture, in that person's day-to-day, -day, and in maybe your own behaviors as well. Absolutely. Also, praise is a really great way to do that. Sharing praise. I know at Ali, we have we make praise visible. I mean, that's part of our work. It's not just making our stories visible. It's making the praise visible so that other people can see how the diverse perspectives and and of how how team members are experiencing the good things that you do. I know that a team member. You know, I had been working really hard on our hiring. Uh, this past, these last couple weeks, uh, specifically, you know, reaching out to more diverse companies to share about Ali. And um, it, it involved a lot of writing, a lot of applications, and it was something that was less visible. And it meant a lot to me that a team member, you know, gave me praise for it. And it was publicly shared in the channel or like, you know, our coaching program. I think it was, you know, having a executive team member, I think it was probably Bridget, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, share in front of the company, acknowledging something that I do, that I did. So it's like that value of being valued and elevating and amplifying people's work and making them feel valued. And, oh, John, I have to say this. When we're amplifying and when you're, you know, you're talking about instead of power hoarding, power sharing and, 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 and giving credit where credit is due, it's also specific credit. It's not just saying Mary had a great idea. It's specifically saying what the idea was. And that is also like being very specific and very direct to the person. That's how adults feel valued. So I think there's, it's important to name. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. If someone says something that I agree with in a meeting, I don't just try to piggyback. What I'm trying to do is say, Mary, I love that you just said that. I really mm -hmm. agree with what with your ideas there. And boom. So it's yes and. It's focusing on the person and then and and layering on. Not even just sort of saying like, good point. In other <laughs> words, you know, and like be like, if I can just rephrase this idea in words that I like better. Um, some don'ts too. So we talked about something that I've learned is not to assume that every member of an underinvested group feels like they don't have a voice. Yeah. Yes. This happened on, on my team, maybe last year, maybe longer. Uh, someone got a wild hair about one of the, the developers on our team, uh, who's a woman and said, you know, to, to her, you should be doing a lot more demos with the clients so that you get the credit that you deserve, this and that. And her response was, don't trot me out like some token on the team. I like doing work. I, I will share and demo things that I'm excited about, but to do it just so that we have like the FaceTime of someone who's not the people always on the call, she didn't want that. She wanted something different than that. And so I will say too, I may speak deri derisively of that idea, but trying something and failing is better than doing nothing. Hmm. We have to be willing to make mistakes and missteps in trying to change the world because the people who are best positioned to make changes are the least adept and the least 
contextually aware of what has to change. I'm speaking for myself. I, I want things to be better and I will probably put my foot in my mouth nine times out of 10 and trying to do so. Mm. I love that, John. Mistakes are a part of growth. What's most important is that we understand the mistake and learn from it. John, what is your Scrum takeaway for today? My Scrum takeaway for today is that the application of a framework, be it Scrum itself or a protocol for facilitation, is not enough to make changes. We have to actively engage, not passively apply these things to help our teams grow. Sarah Rose, what's your Scrum takeaway for today? My Scrum takeaway for today is the more power you give away, the more powerful you and your team will become. Recorded at Two Tiny Desks in Brooklyn and Raleigh, Two Scrums Up is hosted by Sarah Rose Belloc and John Ragazine. Show logo by Kelsey Lakotos. Season 2 theme music by Jonathan Byerly. Executive producer at North Star, Bridget McNulty. We'd love to learn from your experiences. Please talk to us at Scrums Up on Twitter. Leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. I'm going to like layer it on and see what happens. And people on the team, several people on the team. Oh my God, she's so did cute. Did you hear Ginger? <laughs> no, she was, I think because Wendy, like they're fighting. So that's like a, a crying, mild pain. Okay. As a scrum, as a scrum, as a so, equity of voice. It's perfect. As a equity of voice, the puppy got hurt. So.